0: 2024 marks the 100th anniversary of the Royal Canadian Air Force with celebrations and events planned to honor those who have served and those serving today while inspiring the next generation of RCAF personnel. Visit rcaf2024arc.ca to learn about the RCAF's past and current fleet of more than 200 aircraft, plus the many planned activities including air shows, e-gaming tournaments, the RCAF Run, Canadian Tulip Festival, and STEM activities for youth. Then, on April 1st, in recognition of the positive impact the RCAF has had worldwide, businesses, cities, and landmarks around the world will be illuminating in Air Force Blue to celebrate the occasion. Join the fun. Illuminate your residence or place of work in blue to show your support while joining a world record attempt for the most landmarks illuminated within 24 hours. And when you do, share a picture on social media using hashtag RCAF2024, hashtag RCAF100, or hashtag Your Air Force. Again, RCAF2024ARC.ca to learn more about the Royal Canadian Air Force Centennial.
1: We would get calls and you know it's going to be bad where you're going. And of course you're scared, but there's a guy out there, you're his last hope. If you don't go, no one's going to try. Like they say in The Godfather, this is the life we've chosen. I chose this. Sam Lodge in five Wait, somebody got Get
0: out of here. To me, boys. Hello, and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and as we always like to say, most importantly, the people. I am your host, Vincent Iello, call sign Jello, and this is episode 179. And if you're wondering why some episodes get numbers and some don't, you know what, I don't know. We just somehow got off the tracks on that one. And I think where we are now is if it has a YouTube video component, then it gets a number. And if it doesn't, well, then it doesn't. So that's why last week's discussion on the fleet readiness center Southwest and me flying my post maintenance check flights doesn't have a number because there was no video with it. But this one does. And we'll talk a little bit more about it in a moment. Now, before we get to it, though, I just want to mention once more our Patreon page, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. If you go over to that.com and look for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, well, you can help support this show, which would be wonderfully appreciated. And it also gives you access to exclusive content and different things we do on there, including a chapter a month on my memoirs, which for those of you who are already signed up, you're probably not going to get one for November unless I can write it overnight, because I've just been tied up with everything else. But try to do that. We have debriefs once in a while. And then we have milestone perks, which are really cool. As you reach different giving levels, you might get a sticker and a magnet or a photo or a patch that says supporter, maybe a t shirt, a coin. You remember uh, Guido from gosh, what episode number was that? Anyway, he had the check six vodka. Well, for those of you of age and states where we can ship it, we're thinking about making those one of the higher perks. Otherwise, hats and coffee mugs and all that. So if you would consider that, we would certainly appreciate your support. And it's a great place to interact. Now, also, before we get to the episode, we'll have a couple listener questions. I want to read this email for you. It's not a question per se, but it's feedback. And we do get stuff like this once in a while. And I just thought I would share this one. It says, hi, Bio. And Bio is one of the co-hosts of the F14 TomCast. Hi, bio. My name is David Weiser, and I'm from Fargo, North Dakota. Just wanted to say thank you to you and Crunch for the F-14 TomCast. That's our sister show you might be familiar with. It's on our YouTube channel. The TomCast was one of the reasons that convinced me to sign my name on the dotted line a couple weeks ago as I joined the North Dakota Army National Guard as a JAG officer. Had it not been for the TomCast, I'm not sure I would be starting this new adventure. Thanks for all you guys do. Well, that's pretty cool, David. Thanks for sending that in. Bio shared it with us. And like I said, we receive feedback like that from time to time. And I hope the recruiters and the branches are listening because I feel like our shows have made a big difference in the folks that not only decide to sign up, but when they do, as I said uh, on a recent episode, oh yeah, I listened to you through flight school or whatever. I think we help them and motivate them as well. So just wanted to share that with you. Now I have two listener questions. They're both emails. Our phone number is still hibernating for the time being while we decide what to do with it. But the first is from Heiko, who says what benefits are there using the Mirage F1 at Drocken?" Now you might remember on episode 61 on the F22, our guest Stretch was from Drocken, So I reached out to him and I said, Hey, Stretch, what's going on? What can you tell me to tell Heiko? And he gave me four points. He says it is more cost effective to use the F1 mic than a U.S. Air Force, Marine Corps, or Navy current active fourth or fifth generation fighter to simulate the adversary in our Red Air training. The F-1 Mike can fly intercept profiles that match real world threats, i.e. high, fast, or low fast flyers. F-18 has some struggling with that at times, depends on what's on it. And the Serrano 4M, the radar installed on our F-1 mics, he says, do a pretty good job of replicating threat radar capabilities. And then finally, every hour we at Draken Fly for the Department of Defense saves hours on active Department of Defense fighter aircraft, effectively extending the life of the fighter force, thus preserving combat capability for the future. So Heiko, hopefully that makes sense. But just to his final point there, when I was in, well, really many of my squadrons, but I was thinking my first squadron, VFA 86, we would sometimes go out and in order to get, let's say, division training, that's four of us, if we didn't have enough of our own squadron aircraft, we might have to call a sister squadron and say, hey, can you fly for us tomorrow? We'll fly for you the next day or whatever the case is. Or maybe we just send out four total and two are the good guys and two act as the bad guys. Well, with Draken and other systems and companies like them, now we could theoretically call them up and maybe have our whole division and they will come out and give us the presentations we need and good debriefs and do it for us. And we don't have to waste two of our airplanes flying as the bad guys. And even though as the pilot, I still got training in that and it helped my proficiency. It's just not the best use as Stretch says there, of the F-18 in that case. So that is why you see more and more commercial air service squadrons like Draken who are providing this contract service to the government. Then I received an email from Rob Atwater. He's from Rye, New Hampshire. And Rob wants to know, well, he says, basically, frequently pictures of our aircraft carriers have what appears to be about one half to one third of the air wing on the flight deck, all arranged in nice groups. How long does it take to get them set up this way? And more importantly, how long does it take to undo this? Now, Rob goes on, but let me address his points as we go here. So, yes, that is true. And you might be thinking, Rob, or others might, well, hey, that's kind of a threat, right? Because if you hit one of them, you're going to blow them all up. And, of course, we have layers of defense and depth and other early warning that should prevent the aircraft carrier from being attacked But I'm thinking of December 7th, 1941, when all the aircraft at Ford Field, as I understand in my readings, were lined up very close to each other in the middle of the airfield. And that was, as I understand, to avoid sabotage by they thought maybe Japanese that might infiltrate Oahu and find their way in and be able to reach it with, I don't know, hand grenade or mortar or something. But what happened is they didn't expect an air attack. And so with all the fighters lined up, it was very easy for the attacking Japanese to damage or destroy them. So that was a problem there. But Rob, I don't believe that is as big a problem on the carrier. And in fact, generally the handler, who is the person in charge of where aircraft are parked with, of course, the direction from the air boss and the captain of the ship, We'll decide, hey, let's put everything up on the bow real close to each other so that the waste is available for maybe helicopters or CMV 22Bs to come and go. And how long does it take? I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. A while. (laughs) I don't think that helps, but each one takes about what, four people? You've got a tug driver, you've got two wing walkers, and you have uh, someone in a yellow shirt directing the tug driver. And then once they park it, then the blue shirts come along and chalk and chain it. So depending on how far it's going, you don't go very fast. I don't know, a few minutes each and then a bunch of minutes for all of them. And then, yeah, when it's time to reposition, then you take one at a time and you move it where it needs to go. So I don't really know how to qualify that. I mean, time is an obvious measure, uh, minutes and seconds and hours, but it takes some time. And of course the ship knows when we're going to fly next. So they just back that up and say, all right, well, we need to respot the deck and it takes a couple hours. So let's get going. Now, if a threat posture is such that we don't think we'll have that luxury of time, then they will only park the carrier a certain way, if you will. All right, getting back to Rob's question, I think it occurred to me when I was looking at a picture of a carrier transiting the Suez Canal with aircraft parked on the front end of the carrier on top of the nose catapults and a lot of aircraft parked on the stern all across the landing area. It seems like it would take quite a bit of time to rearrange, arm, and maybe even fuel the aircraft. Yeah, you're right, Rob. It does. The Suez Canal, I mean, we're a bit of a sitting duck there anyway, but we have other defenses at our disposal to help us with those situations where we are unable to defend ourselves on the carrier. And I won't go into too much on that, but you're right. Before we get to the Suez Canal, the squadrons will button up all their jets, including taping off different ports and openings to keep sand out. And then uh, once we come out of the canal, then they pull all that off, do what they need to do to get it ready for the next day that we fly. And then finally, Rob says, I guess that just led me to another group of questions. How long does it take to get the aircraft ready to fight? Do they sit full of fuel? What about the guns? Do they sit loaded? Obviously missiles and bombs are not on them. You can see that in the pictures. Well, Rob, and to my earlier point about Patreon, this is where I think I'm at the end of my limit for free. (laughs) If you'd like to come over to patreon.com, We have a messaging system there where I like to chat with folks who support the show and answer all their questions. And I would encourage you to uh, take advantage of that because it'll help you to answer all your questions and it helps me keep the lights on and afford the microphone I'm speaking into here and keeps my wife at bay who wonders why I spend so much time doing this. All right. The short answer is it depends where we are and what we're doing. If we are near a threat, we'll keep some aircraft on alert, fueled, armed. If we're off the coast of San Diego, then we're not too worried about it. All right. Well, that is it for announcements and listener questions. Episode 179 this week is another repurposed happy hour because just once in a while, it's tough to get everybody in the studio and get all these things produced. So this one is with a friend called Yonel Dorellis and uh, Yogi, if I pronounce that incorrectly, I do apologize. I don't think I ever asked you your real name, but I know it. And anyway, in fairness to our recent episode with Yank, talking about the Ford, we now have a true Yank. Yanel or Yogi as we call him, is a true New Yorker, as you will soon hear in his colorful way of speaking and telling stories and a little bit of his language. I think we've bleeped out a little bit of it, but we did leave some. So for those of you with young ears nearby, you might hear about what you'd hear these days on TV, I feel like. Now, this was recorded back in 2020. So we talk a little bit about covid as well as the uh, Zoom recording itself was just a different format, those happy hours that used to come out on Patreon, now we're bringing them over here as well. They were just a more casual format, just talk about anything. We don't ask call sign questions at the end, we don't ask for the extensive background and all that. But we'd like to use it here and you'll find the video component to it over on our YouTube channel, like I mentioned before. It's got some B-roll to go along with what Yogi's talking about. I won't be back at the end. I hope you enjoy it. And we'll see you next time here on the fighter pilot podcast. So let's go to our 2020 happy hour with Yogi. Here we go. All right, Yogi, what's going on? It's good to meet you.
1: Good to meet you as
0: well. So make sure I'm all set. <laughs> all right, sweet. I don't even remember how we got connected. Did you find me? Did I find you? What happened?
1: I found you. I was, you know, I'm an EMS Halo pilot and I live in Vegas and work in Yuma. So yeah, it's a five-hour drive, so I'm always flipping through different podcasts. I saw your podcast, and then uh, you were doing the stuff on Army Aviation, but I decided to listen. I just like the podcast. You know, I thought it was interesting, and um, I saw you. uh, There's a couple of ones I want to go back to where you talk about certain aircraft and stuff, so I thought it was a cool podcast, and um, I'm late to the podcast game. It's only like the last couple of years that I've really started listening to them, and You know, I listen to the standard stuff, Joe Rogan, stuff like that. But I like to branch out. I saw yours, so it's kind of cool, man. You know, I I realize my background is pretty interesting. I've had a very undistinguished military career, but it's interesting. So I thought I'd give you a shout out and see if you wanted to meet up and talk.
0: Absolutely. Well, I think you should probably have your own podcast because what did you tell me on email? You've been, you're a helicopter pilot for whom?
1: Okay, so I served in four branches of the military. I flew helos in three. So I've been a naval <laughs> aviator, an army aviator, and a pilot in the Air Force. In the Air Force, they don't call themselves aviators. They oh, just oh say- my
0: goodness. All right, Yogi, <laughs> let's start at the beginning. So you're getting out of high school. Where would you go first?
1: No, well, I, I had been wanting to be in the military since as far back as I can remember. I mean, um, I grew up in New York in the city, and I've got a picture of me when I'm probably about three years old with a little airplane. I can't tell you when I started being fascinated with flying. You know, as I got older and learned more about it, I, I was also pretty fascinated with uh the military. It was kind of a World War Two buff from really early on. By ten I could tell you every World War Two aircraft, you know, Allied, Axis, Japanese, you know. So I just can't tell you why. I just you know how it is to get something bites you when you're a little kid and all you think about is airplanes and flying from that point on. And then, um, watching the Vietnam footage on the news every night, seeing helicopters. Then I was like, wait, wait, what are those things? You know, and started thinking those would be interesting. And, uh, I wasn't a great kid growing up, you know, so I had a couple of bumps in the road, but, uh, I kind of knew that I wanted to be an officer and my mom dated a guy I used to be a Marine aviator. And, uh, I was about 14, 15. He was telling me stories. And I was like, wait, they pay you for that? You know, <laughs> he was just telling me. And I would, you know, from that point on, I was kind of hooked on being a Marine aviator and uh, uh-huh. went in a platoon leaders class when I was in college. I, you know, did the two summers instead of the one, which I've advised several people since then is about the dumbest thing you could ever do. <laughs> you know, do the one 10 week course. Don't do the two, six week courses. Cause that's just doubling the pain but at the time I was like well I don't want to give up my whole summer I can still go to the Hamptons and go to the beach and half the summer and that was just one of many dopey decisions that I've made in my life.
0: I'll start a counter here we'll track them okay.
1: Yeah I've got a few and uh, got through OCS got my commission showed up at TBS at Quantico went through TBS Kinda of excited. I I didn't get poked in the eye. You know everything was good. I was kinda of excited about Pensacola. And they call us in O'Bannon Hall, which is the big auditorium down there. And you know I'm paraphrasing, but they basically said, "Sucks to be you guys. We have too many pilots at both ends of the pipeline." I mean they had uh, the rag was backed up for uh, especially on the jet side of the house. Uh, the the F4 rag and then the new because uh, they were still flying F4s then. And then uh, they just had too many aviators. So what they originally told us with the air contracts was, if you keep your air contract, we'll stick you where we need you for two or three years. And then if your physical still good and blah, 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 you'll get the flight school. You know, we had our filled out our dream sheets and I had orders to the 7th Truck Battalion, Camp Pendleton, California. So needless to say, I was a little depressed one of the lieutenants in my class his dad was a navy admiral worked at nav air so he just walks over to his marine counterparts and goes you know what's going on they tell him he goes well we're hurting for pilots this year do you think any of these guys want to swap over to the navy this is a 1984 1985 1985 84 time frame and um don't get me wrong i love the marine corps i kind of drank the kool-aid but I just laugh at this now, typical Marine fashion. They're like, well, you might get a few guys who are interested, sure, you can go down there and ask, blah, blah, blah. So long story short, one day they call us back in the auditorium, and there's these two Navy 06s there. And they're basically like, look, our PTR for this year and projected in the next year, we're pretty short. And how many of you guys think you'd like to get to flight school sooner rather than later? You know, who'd be interested? So a bunch expressed interest, and they said, okay, we'll arrange for a, a mass flight physical. We'll just zero out everybody's physical. We'll take everybody's interested down to Pensacola. So we go down to, I don't know, it was probably a couple of hundred of us, because it involved three companies at TBS. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it, it was significant amount of guys with air contracts. So we all go down to Pensacola, which is the worst mistake. That's where the Marine Corps made their mistake, was allowing a bunch of lieutenants who've been cooped up in Quantico, Virginia for six months (laughs) to go down to Pensacola. You know, those of us who passed our flight physical, now we've got a weekend to kill in Pensacola, right? So, needless to say, by the time we get back to Quantico, everybody's like, F this, I'm in, (laughs) you know? Long story short, they worked out a drug deal, took a couple months for the paperwork to come through, and my company graduated TBS, so I graduated they put me in charge of the headquarters company. I was in charge of all the guys, you know, building the shooting ranges and fixing up all the stuff out in the field. And it was great for a new officer because these were all the guys who were in trouble. They were the blind, crippled, crazy. They tried to salute me with their left hand. And it was just a good experience as for a young officer to kind of learn how to... I just got a, my ass kicked early and kind of learned you know, what to get excited about, what not to get excited about, not to act like Field Marshal Rommel as a, you know, 01. And, and it was good. And then, boom, one day, you know, standard attention, they hand me my DD 214 from the Marine Corps. I sidestep over one. I raised my right hand. I swear in as an ensign in the Navy. I was in Pensacola a week later and some brand new CNTs and letting my hair grow. It was about 100, uh, I want to say about 150 of us made the switch. And um, started AI, got through AI, got to primary. I stayed at Whiting the whole time. Turned out I wasn't a natural flyer like I thought I was. I mean, I I had had, you know, not to digress to my college career, which was less than stellar, but I did go to Embry-Riddle for a semester where I had a cumulative GPA of less than two. I did fly and I did get about 40 hours of flight time and just shy of my private. So... Got to Pensacola thinking I was ahead of the game and I really wasn't. I was a student and that was where being a student bit me in the ass. You know, I failed a couple of the tests and stuff so I was kind of under the gun early. But managed to muddle through and when it was time for selection and, and actually almost scared me. They were like, well, we're doing this quality spread thing. So we're gonna take some of you guys who don't have the best grades and put you in the jet pipeline to see if guys with not so great grades in primary and intermediate could be successful in the jet pipeline. And I'm like, at that point, I decided I wanna be a helo pilot. So I just put helos, helos, helos on mine and figured they'll figure it out. Anything after that, I'm not gonna complain about. I'm still here. So, and I got helos, got through the helo pipeline, got my wings in August of '86. Flew 53 E's, was stationed in the Philippines for uh, three years, and then came back to Norfolk. Finished out in Norfolk in uh, 91, thought maybe I had a new kid. I had two kids by that time, and I thought, like all guys, I don't want to deploy anymore. Maybe I should see what's out in the corporate world, blah, blah, blah. Got with one of those headhunters, and uh, got a corporate job in New York. I'm not going to lie, Jello. I was there 10 minutes before I realized I made a huge mistake. Yeah. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I couldn't get, you know, the Navy was like, well, you know, I was like, hey, can I come back? And they were like, actually, go after yourself. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, you know, now we got plenty of pilots. You know how the cycle goes. and oh, You yeah. see what's going on now in the military. And, you know, everybody's short. So by the time I got out, the cycle was completely different. There was plenty of pilots. So, uh I ended up working for a friend of mine in the theater business. And uh, in the meantime, I shotgun paperwork to every reserve aviation unit within a hundred miles and the army guard came back first. So I became a warrant officer in the army guard flying Hueys on Long Island, which (laughs) honestly was fun. It was just a lot Uh, of fun. All that. You know, I mean, all these guys, all the warrants were like all been to Vietnam and we would brief these intricate tactical missions with the Lieutenant. And then as soon as he leaves the W three would go We're we're just going to fly down to Atlantic city and have some Chinese food and do the And so it's just, it was like a flying club and it was, this is a lot of fun.
0: Oh man.
1: And, um, I did that for about four years while working in the theater business. I would do as many extra, you know, I'd fly two, three times a week, plus the drills. I mean, I, I, I was loving it. Then, uh, there was an opening in the air guard unit out in West Hampton beach who did combat search and rescue. And I was like, that'd be cool. And I just kind of said, Hey, you know, here's my background. Would you guys be interested? They're like, sure. So I joined that unit, did a swap over to the air guard, was in that unit was going through an in-house training program. There weren't any slots at the schoolhouse for guys in the guard at that time. So it was kind of going slow. Cause I'm trying to go through basically a schoolhouse, At a sort of an ad hoc thing, but I was coming along, and then um, an opportunity to go to the schoolhouse came up. And they said, Would you want to go? And I'm like, Sure. So I start going to the schoolhouse, which is in Albuquerque, New Mexico, at Kirtland Air Force Base. And I'm going through with active duty guys, reserve guys, you know, the whole. And about three quarters of the way through, uh, one of the active duty guys is explaining to me that the assignments guy is there, the equivalent of the detailer. And he heard their short pilots on active duty. So I just grabbed the guy in the hallway and I said, Hey, this is who I am. I'm, I'm from the New York air guard. I'm, you know, what about coming on active duty? Cause after being on active duty for the schoolhouse, I was like, you know, I kind of like putting the zoom bag on every day. And I'm like, I kind of like being back in this environment. And so he goes, did your unit pay for you to go to flight school? I'm like, no, I'm a, you know, I gave him my background. He goes, okay, put in a request to come on active duty. And if your command supports it," I'll bring you on for two years. And my command, they were pretty supportive. The guard gets a little upset sometimes because what you get is a lot of guys come in, they start flying helos. Then they find out about an opening in a unit that has C-17s or F-16s, or they get a little bummed about that. But since I was just going back to fly the same thing, and basically it was like, look, this is just a, frankly, a better deal for me and my family. They were pretty supportive. Next thing I know, I'm on active duty in the Air Force, which – Probably the biggest culture shock yeah. of life, military, because, I, you know, coming from the Marine Corps and the Navy, and, you know, you can say what you want about the Navy. The Navy's pretty real military, you know what I mean? And, you know, so it was a culture shock for me. Little things, like I would walk in an office and nobody, you know, they'd still keep their feet on the desk and, you know, stuff like that. And I, initially, I used to get pissed off. I'd be like, you know, don't you, not because I thought I was a cool guy, just, it bummed me out. I'm like, you don't stand when an officer walks in the room or, or or I remember one time the biggest thing, I asked some guy to do something, he goes, sir, I don't work for you. And I just went, you know. Oh, wow. I eventually calmed down and then I found out I was eligible for the bonus, the retention bonus. And now again, another example of me not thinking things through, I'm like, sure, I'll take the bonus, whatever. But I'm in the Air Force less than a year when my first promotion board to major is now i've done none of the prerequisites that the air force wants you to do to get to be selected for major you have to go to pme right you you know which is mandatory before you get selected i don't know how it is in the navy now there wasn't you didn't have to do that stuff it was just based on your fit reps right you know you have to go to pme which i hadn't done then i got it done by correspondence but then if you got done by correspondence it doesn't way as much as if you did it in residence. I had one, fit, you know, one OPR, officer performance report, which is the same as a fit rep. So basically they were like, you got no shot. I'm like, okay, well, whatever. I'm here. And then, so I don't get promoted. Of course, now you get above the zone. That's not really going to work well for you. So now they're like, well, your option is, are you willing to stay a captain to 20? I'm like, yeah, sure. I don't care. You know what I mean? I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, well, I guess I have less responsibility. People look at me like I'm some sort of shag, Excuse my French, but whatever. I'll get the fly. I'm getting the bonus. It's fine. Well, then 9-11 happens. It was a big deal for me because I my brother survived both World Trade Center bombings. And I worked in the World Trade Center. Matter of fact, I was a Navy. My mom was sick and I was Permissive TDY for three months back in New York while she recovered from heart surgery. And I worked in the World Trade Center in the uh, Navy officer recruiting office. Wow! And I'd worked there for my brother as a clerk in the summers. So it was a big deal to me because, you know, I, I, there was a guy I knew from the Marine Corps who uh, died. He worked for Tanner Fitzgerald. You know, and being a New Yorker and having worked there, that was a, that was a big deal for me. You know, my brother survived both bombings. I I actually was trying to get into work it took me 3 hours to get in the gate at Nellis where I was I heard they collapsed on the radio and I remember going well my brother's dead I got to figure out how to tell mom this later you know what I mean because but turns out he he had gotten out oh thank goodness so that that happens and um you know we got right in the war and it it sounds bad but for me personally the war was the best thing that ever happened to me because we deployed we were flying right away. I was, I set up our operations in Kandahar and I was able to wheel and deal and steal and do everything we could to set up our operation. And, and you know, we were able to start flying operational missions, you know, within 24 hours of being told we were moving up there. So aircraft? just our, our HH-60Gs, I, okay. I'm sorry. I'm rambling. So no, this
0: is tra- good, keep going.
1: Flew H3s in the Navy for a little while because when I was in the PI, there was a maintenance problem with the 53, so they were grounded for like almost a year. So I, we flew the H3. A couple of the Helo guys got qualified in the scooter because we were a composite squadron. We had Helos and A4s. Oh, yeah. A couple of the Helo guys got NATOP rides in the scooter. They stopped doing that by the time I got there. Not too bad. Came back uh, when I got out of the Navy and got in the Army Guard. I just flew Hueys, H model Hueys, which was awesome. I mean, it's like a classic helicopter. Yeah. Then uh, when I got out, when I went to the Air Force, I flew the HH-60G Pave Hawk, which is just a modified version of the Black Hawk. We have internal tanks, another 2,000 pounds of tanks. We can AR, you know, we have all the uh, ALQ and all the other stuff to keep us from getting shot down. Meanwhile, like my British friend told me when he was in Ireland, They would just wait till they landed and they would just fling bricks at and they would go into the rotor disc and two helicopters done right there. They just they said a bunch of kids would just come and he goes, you know, we used to worry about getting shot at. He goes, it was nothing. We'd land in the LZ, it's about four or five kids, just arc some bricks in, they just come right through the rotor disc and boom, now you have two Lynx helicopters out of commission. That
0: sucks.
1: I always like that story just because I thought it's money we spend on
0: Technology defeating stuff, and all it takes is a simple rock or brick,
1: right? Or the wrong rock to go through, you know, or a pebble to go through yeah. the uh, intake. All
0: but, right, so uh, you go to uh, you, you go overseas after nine eleven, and so you said this ended up being good for you. Did it help you what, get promoted, or you just got yeah? Eventually, I got
1: promoted. I, yeah. I, I think
0: right. my line
1: number was seven. I got promoted above the zone, uh, just because of stuff I did. I mean, I flew a couple of good missions. Uh, I was co-pilot to a guy. They gave him the Silver Star, so they had to give us stuff. So we all, everybody else, you know, I got a DFC, and the other guys got air, the guys in the back got Air Medals. Cool. But mainly, I think what got me promoted is I, I'm kind of a wheeler dealer. Use my New York stuff to make deals, and we had a lot of cool gear that we could trade with people. We like we had all these these really nice Gerber switch blades, and we had a lot of off-the-shelf because the Air Force. You're kind of a bastard stepchild in the Hilo world in the Air Force, right? I mean, night and day from the Navy. So you're really—I mean, I've had O sixes come up to me, look at me, go, "Are those Air Force wings yet? Yeah. We have helicopters in the Air Force." <laughs> I mean, and I'm not lying to you; yeah. I'm, I'm not making that up, Vinny. That is the honest to God truth. So you're a little bit of a bastard stepchild. So we were able to buy a lot of cool stuff off the shelf, like cold weather gear. And so I would trade with our Canadian friends or the army or whoever, you know, I was kind of a, if you read catch 22, I was a little bit of a Milo Minderbinder binder type of character. Not so much. I didn't trade with the Taliban like he did with the jet, but I mean, I just could figure out a way to get stuff done. I was able to set up a lot of operations. I could figure out how many nippers, sipper lines we needed based on our footprint. And then I, I could ask realistic questions from the engineers, you know, and, and the folks who were supporting us. So I got pretty good at that. And, and my bosses liked that they could send me somewhere as an advon or somewhere and I could set up an operation because we operated in like three ship detachments, you know, so three to make two. And, you know, we'd go with that many aircraft, that many maintenance personnel, that many. So depending on where we would get sent, I would go ahead and say, okay, This is what we're gonna need to be able to operate out of here bare bones and still be able to communicate back to higher headquarters. Because we were always geographically separated from any kind of hire, just because we would have to be forward. So you'd have to have a good handle on that. So I I got good at that. I got good at liaising with the hosts or the sister services because I could speak the language of most other services and just I I wouldn't alienate them like. Some of, I've been in situations where, you know, they tell you, okay, they're going to support you. Like when we showed up at Kandahar, the Army had just taken over from the Marines and we show up and they're basically like, who the F are you guys? You know, we're like, we're Air Force rescuing. The guy I was with, the O four, 4 he's basically telling this Army O five, 5 not understanding the different stature that an Army O five 5 has than an Air Force O five 5 has because of the level of responsibility and just the job he's doing, he's kind of like putting a finger in the guy's chest saying you're supposed to support us and this, that, and the other. And I could see this wasn't going to go well. So I kind of said, Hey, why don't you worry about setting up the base? Let me go talk to these guys. I can talk the grunt language and grunt and groan." And, and I did and, and I kind of made nice with that Colonel. And then he put me with his supply guy who happened to be a guy from New York you know, so we just hit it off, and then I was able to just work that. It worked out well. But I, I learned, you know, how to schmooze people the right way so you don't piss them off. Cause it's easy to show up somewhere and start pissing people off. So I got good at that. I was never known for my diplomacy, but I seemed to be able to work that well. My commanders liked it. My bosses liked it. So they managed to get me promoted. Look, I know how the system works. They had the right stuff to say look yes this guy's above the zone but here's what he's done and here's why he needs to be in 04 and I, I made 04 and i knew that was as far as it was going to go and that was fine i actually if you must know being a passed over major is probably the best rank in the military because <laughs> you're kind of bulletproof you're not worried about getting promoted and especially in our environment where we were deployed so much I was very mission oriented. You know, I was a little, I guess I'm a bit of a dichotomy. I thought the war was for my own personal entertainment, but I also was serious about our mission. I just wasn't serious about E eights and E nines harassing my guys over minor uniform violations. And so being a passed over guy, you could be a little more aggressive in telling people to leave your folks alone and do this. Cause my boss would just go, well, He's passed over. What do you want me to do? I can't send him home, you know, I mean, because he was on board with that too, but he just had to play the game.
0: Right. Attention veterans, obtaining the right medical evidence could make a significant impact on your disability rating. It's easy to feel overwhelmed with paperwork, or you may have no idea how to get started. If your disability rating is at or below 90%, allveteran.com is here to help. All Veteran is a powerful resource that can help you collect the needed medical evidence to support your service-connected disability and potentially increase your rating. Simply visit info.allveteran.com forward slash jello and fill out the form. It only takes a minute. Soon after, you'll be connected with medical specialists who have helped thousands of veterans gather the evidence needed to accurately increase their disability rating. No hassle, just a straightforward way to accurately support your VA disability rating. An increased rating may be easily within your reach thanks to this valuable resource committed to ensuring you receive the benefits you rightfully earned. Get started today by visiting info.allveteran.com forward slash J E L L O.
1: When he would get a call about me, he'd be like, Well, you know, he's passed over. I mean, he's going to retire in two years. I mean, he's a good pilot. What do you want me to do? Yeah. You know, I can't send him home. I'm short pilots. You know, so. It worked out good and I spent 13 and a half years you know the timing was right or wrong however you want to look at it basically the first couple of years in the air force we deployed to northern and southern watch you know I'm sure you're familiar with those did rescue alert there mm-hmm. it was a lot of fun got to do some really interesting flying especially in Turkey right on the border you know we Landed a Turkish base, sit alert while they're going out. We watched the Cobra shoot up the PKK, where their medevac birds were coming with the wounded. I mean, we're basically in the middle of a war zone watching right. them fight their internal war while we're sitting there five miles from the Iraqi border waiting for the aircraft to come back over the fence when the ATO day ended. And that was fun. And then 9 11 happened, and we were what's known as a high demand, low density asset. So we were on a one to one dwell. We'd do 120 days. And you'd be home 120 days, and then you'd be back on the road 100. So for me, it worked out perfect. I mean, I spent nearly a decade. You know, I think I've I've got about 37 months deployed out of seven years in 120-day increments, maybe Mm -hmm. a little more, a little less, depending. But so for me, it was great. I mean, we flew. I got to fly the great – look, Combat Search and Rescue is the greatest mission out there, bar none. There's nothing better than, you know, I'm in the triple digits in terms of lives saved. I have no problem bragging about that. I'm very, very happy about that. I still kind of do that for a living now. And and I mean, there's no, there's no higher calling, in my opinion, than yeah. to go out there and bring your brothers and sisters home. And uh, being able to do that was, was a gift, man. It, the whole thing was a gift to me, honest. I served with the coolest people. I wouldn't trade anything Like I said, I've had an interesting and highly undistinguished military career, but it was fun.
0: Well, that's why you're here. This is, wow, this is amazing. So, first off, thanks for that story. That was amazing. So, in the end, you have an active duty retirement, right? Uh, I do.
1: I retired with 22 years active duty, 28 years total with my broken service guard and (laughs) reserve time, but I'm a retired major. Yeah, my little Air Force ID card, you know? Yeah. I mean,
0: that's awesome. All right. You said the term DD-214 earlier. And so for those who might watch this later and don't know what that means, that is, uh, tell me if I'm wrong here, uh, a summary of your military service, like where you serve, what awards you receive, where you deployed and what you've done. Mine is pretty simple. Did almost 25 years in the Navy, did a couple, like you said, Southern Watch, and then they changed the name of it to what, uh, Iraqi Freedom and then New Dawn. Uh, Did a couple other things. What does your DD-214 look like? It must be several pages.
1: Well, I have three of them. (laughs) I have one from the Marine Corps, one from the Navy. The Guard doesn't give you a DD-214. They give you a summary of service, right? But I have three (laughs) DD-214s. So I have one from the Marine Corps, one from the Navy, and one from the Air Force. You know, my Air Force one obviously has the most stuff on it. It's got like 15 years, whatever months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lists awards, decorations, stuff like that. I've got them on a, you know, they're on file. I've I've had to break them out for certain jobs and, you know, but um, look, like I said, I mean, I'm not a suit, you know, if I'm honest, I was happy to be in the same room with the people I worked with because I was an an average guy. You know, I give my military career a C if I had to grade it, you know, but I I was with some really, I've witnessed a lot of really brave things and I've, privileged to work with the PJs and the backenders who would get in a helicopter with a a schmuck like me in the front driving around at night 50 feet one rotor disc on goggles and weather and they would get on board and trust me to get them home is amazing to me and then the PJs who would do that and then you know in the middle of a firefight just be like yeah just sir, put us in we're good and I'm like well let me try to get in there without getting us shot up first and then they get in there and I had guys like, leave me here. We had one guy who's a former Special Forces. A lot of the PJs come from other places, like Mm -hmm. Marine Recon, a couple of SEALs, a couple of, we had one guy who was former Special Forces. One night we land, picking up some wounded, and it's chaotic, this is during Operation Anaconda, and apparently, according to this guy, he gets there, and the platoon commander is in the fetal position, like, just not, and so, uh, this guy decides, he gets the wounded to the helicopter, he tells the pilot, I'm gonna stay here and take over this platoon and fight until you guys come back later. Well, <laughs> I was in the two aircraft. This is happening in the lead aircraft. And we're hearing this on the internal, and of course the pilot of the other aircraft, my buddy Ed goes, get your ass in the goddamn helicopter. <laughs> we're getting out of here. But these are the kind of guy, I mean, I could sit here and tell you PJ stories for hours. Um, a guy took one to the chest in his vest, right? And the aircraft's about to take off, and he's like, "Hey, sir, can you wait ten seconds? I just took a round to the chest, and I want to find it so I can keep it as a souvenir and put it on a chain." Now, this is in the middle of uh, this is the middle of a fight, but you know, this is he's like, "I just want to get out of the aircraft for a second and see if I can find it." Luckily, it was in his vest, like. It was between the material and the ceramic, so he was able to recover it and make a necklace out of it. But I mean, it's kind of stuff, you know. Everybody else is screaming like a schoolgirl, and these guys uh-huh. are like, "Yeah, just hoist me in," or "Just do." And you're just like, "Oh, you know." And there's just ne- never, yeah. You know what's crazy? I- I've been in a couple of those war movie situations where our flight lead one day, where this during Operation Anaconda, you know, they're like, "Hey, the aircraft been getting shot off all day." off the LZ will you guys try to get the wounded out so we're you know he's like yeah sure we'll give it a shot and he calls us it was like out of a movie he's like listen there's a good chance if we do this we're going to get fucked up does anybody not want to go and I, I remember thinking well I kind of don't want to go but I'm not going to say I'm looking around, <laughs> right, right, right everybody and, and I'm looking around that. and nobody's saying anything and I'm like well I guess we're going because <laughs> you know. I mean, and people ask me that all the time. Like, what makes you do stuff? And I'm like, honestly, it's just peer pressure. It's it's simple. You don't want to look like a pussy. So you're like, I guess I'm going. And then you go, and it's very cliche. Training takes over, yeah. and just it's muscle memory. You're just doing what you're trained to do, and that's outside kind of noise, and you just handle it. And then as you Think about it later and you you know how people deal with fear is kind of interesting. I kind of used to watch how different people deal with it, and you know, the way I dealt with it is like aviation's really good at doing one thing. Teaches you to deal with the things you can deal with. Checklists, emergency procedures, tactics. You know that, so those are the things you control. The stuff you can't control, I felt was a waste of time to give a lot of brain bites to. Because if you did, you'd make yourself catatonic. So I was just like, okay, this is what I can do. If some dude gets lucky and shoots me in the face with an RPG, I got nothing. You know, I leave what I can to the man upstairs. You know, I mean, I'd always say a little prayer and I'd be like, hey, it's up to you. And I'm not a super religious guy and my relations with the big man have always been informal. You know, so I'm just <laughs> like, hey, I leave it up to you. This is this is what I can do, and, and that that's what helped me. You know, I, I'm not a particularly brave guy, but that's how I dealt with it. A lot of it is just your buddies, and then it's just your friends. You're just not gonna leave your friends, yeah. or you're not gonna. Le- the problem is, is we would get calls, and you know it's gonna be bad where you're going, mm-hmm. and you know, or you have crappy weather in between, or or all these challenges, tactical problems, you want to call them. And of course you're scared. Of course you'd rather not leave the movie you're watching to go do this but there's a guy out there you're his last hope if you don't go no one's gonna try and so basically my thing was how dare you think you shouldn't go when that guy's laying out there maybe bleeding out or trying to evade the enemy and we know that it's not going to go well if he's captured or all the different scenarios I've you know situations I've been in so you just go you know and at some point, you know, I'm a big movie fan. Like they say in The Godfather, this is the life we've chosen. You know, right. what, you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. I chose this, you yeah. know. and
0: You know what? I, the only thing I would add, Yogi, I think you're right about all that. I, the only other thing I would add is just flat out denial. Like, well, this ain't going to happen to me. Yeah, I'm scared. Well,
1: everybody thinks it's not going to happen exactly. to them. Exactly,
0: and- right? So that's the best coping mechanism ever is, yeah, it sucks, and we're going to get shot up, but not me. He will or he will
1: yeah and also a lot of it is too after a while this was difficult for me to come to terms with because i had some difficulties in transition and this was part of it you know i grew up in new york very liberal i grew up you know my mom typical jewish mom wanted a doctor or a lawyer and i was like that's not happening i'm letting you know early that that's not (laughs) happening you know but i actually liked it i enjoyed being downrange i enjoyed the job i can tell you Coming back from flying all night with the sun coming up, and because we did a lot of support for some of the the special operations units out there, we would go out and kind of we were there, you know, nine one one if something went south on their head or whatever. You know, you'd come back from a mission, the sun's coming up, you're getting your gear out of the helicopter, throwing it in the truck. The helos with the shooters are coming in, the seals or rangers, or whoever pick one is was on the you know. To in the shooting that night there with their legs hanging out, wave at you when they fly by, you know, then they land and they got their prisoners and the dogs trying to bite the prisoners and, you, you know, and they're waving, Hey, what's up? What's going on? And then, you know, the Navy was out there doing that. Then HCS guys were out there and the little birds would come in and there were mornings where I was like, man, this is the great, I can't believe they're paying me. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else, but here right now. And you know, intellectually, most people think that's a crazy thing, And it took me a long time to come to terms with that. Like I'm hesitant to use the the word warrior or whatever, but I know that I picked the right profession for those near 30 years of my life, you know, and just like guys are firemen or, or even if a guy's a a lawyer, you know, an investment banker, for me, that was the right profession and I loved it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Rightfully so Yogi. I mean, you're, it's more than just something you're doing that's, got a lot of adrenaline and risk there's this nobility part of it i mean you're part of something larger than yourself you're part of this patriotic force uh, you know cue the music and wave the flags but i'll go there anyway you're part of something larger and you've got this brotherhood that you can't find anywhere else and i would say i have an experience i don't think exactly what you're talking about but something close and i miss that more than anything else i mean i do my airline job now i put on my stupid tie i show up i say hello and goodbye to the people now with a mask on and it's nothing like that. And you can't find that anywhere else.
1: No, it's, you know, I'm, I'm heavily involved in a couple of groups of Reverend Warriors and, and merging vets and players. I'm trying to organize a Silky's hike here in Vegas in, in December, invitation out to you. Basically, you put on your little Ranger panties or your little old PT shorts, combat boots, and we hike 22 clicks. We're gonna do it along the strip, you know, it's to raise awareness of veteran suicide. You know, the, the biggest thing, that the, and, you know, when I retired, it's the camaraderie. It's the wardroom. It's yeah. the guys in your squadron. It's the laugh, the all, you know, I'm sure you'll agree that if you look back on your military career, and most people, when I say this, they kind of look at me sideways, that you remember immediately prior to the laughter, the, the funny things that happened on cruise or, or just things that happened or how you got your call sign or, or whatever, you know, how you guys just tortured each other those are the things that come to mind. And, and those things are just impossible. They are completely impossible to replicate in the civilian world. And, and I'm man enough to admit that's caused me some real problems, both on a personal level and, and even in my job, working with other folks. So I'm used to speaking to people a certain way. And because of the way I spent 30 years in the military, like, you know, if you say to me, if we're doing something, let's say I'm your co-pilot your first officer and I'm doing something wrong. And you say, Yogi man, get your head out of your ass and I'm unf- yourself. I'm going to go, okay, sorry, Jello. Yeah. I, you know, and I'm not going to be mad. I'm not going to be like, I can't believe he spoke to me that way. You know, and I deal with that now because I'm 59. I'm, I'm not changing, <laughs> you know, and, and I'm becoming an anachronism, you know, and, and I find myself in these little conflicts at work where I have to yeah. talk to my yeah. boss about stuff. And I'm like, why are we having this discussion? He's like, because it may not bother me. It may not bother you, it may, but it bothers that person. Yeah. I'm like, well, why do we have to accommodate everybody's, you know? and yeah. you know, I just, I get it. Yeah. You know, and I know it's not right, but it's just the way. It-
0: we have a certain disability, Yogi, having led the lives we led, because I do the same thing. I try to crack a certain joke with my wife or kids, and I'll laugh and laugh, and I'll open my eyes, and they're just looking at me like, you're a real my
1: kids, you know, unfortunately, my wife and I, we're, uh, we're sort of in a uh, same residence separation, I guess I call it. We're in the same. So, but my kids, and they're grown, and I got grandkids, you know, my kids just, they find nothing I do or say even remotely funny, you know, but. I do. Yeah.
0: But you know what I mean? Yeah. That, yeah. It,
1: you know, my grandkids love it. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? But. but uh, If they're young enough, but, uh, they do. Yeah, but uh, it's just, you you know, it's difficult. And I think, kind of said, one of the problems with, I think, veteran suicide is probably, if I had to guess, is missing the camaraderie, missing, especially in a combat environment or even, you know, even an environment on the boat in a non-combat environment. It's so intense. The risks are so severe. You become super close. The friendships are, you know, and when when you're not doing that anymore, you're like, man, what, what's it all about? You know, you get like, exactly. what's it all about? What's, yeah. what's nothing else compares, you know, nothing, nothing compares to yeah. it. It's like, you know, look, I'm not a fighter guy. I haven't slammed it, but I've flown to the boat at night pre goggles off the coast of the Philippines when it's darker than three feet up a cow's ass trying to, f- I almost landed to three banca boats, because they looked like the lights of the ship, oh dang! But you know, because I was landing on a small boy, and I'm like, oh, there it is. I'm good. I'm you know, and mm-hmm. till the tower flower was like, wave off, wave off, wave off, because he said the water was starting to come above the rotor disk. Because <laughs> I was <laughs> flying a perfect approach to the Pacific Ocean, uh, and the and the guy I was flying with was too busy smoking a sick, Because this is oh, for heaven's sake! They had the ashtrays in the helicopters and stuff, and this guy was an old O four, and he's just you know, and I mean, you know, typical naval aviation horror story, man, oh, yeah. you, you almost fly a perfectly good airplane into <laughs> in the, in the ocean. Yeah, no doubt. You know I mean, and I'll, I'll tell you, everybody asked me, you know, what'd you like the best and blah, 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 you know, and, and I'm not saying this because you and I are talking. You know, I, I love the Marine Corps. For me, I needed that, you know, I was the perfect candidate who needed the kind of Marine Corps discipline. And, mm. and OCS was a little different in the sense that, Physically, it was tougher because you had to lead from the front. So the PT and like, what did one of my prior enlisted guys say? He goes, the PT's tougher and they don't beat the out of you as much because they could still put their hands on you a little bit and stuff. All my drill trucks have been to Vietnam because I joined in 81. You know, so it's still only a decade, you know, from the end of the And and so they'd all been to Vietnam. And and, um, but I needed it as an aviator. I'm very glad I was a naval aviator first, and I argue with the Air Force guys all the time about it. They're like, "Oh, you know, our our flight training is meant to be, you know, because the Air Force has this attitude like they're the only ones who really understand aviation. Everybody else is a dilettante, like the Navy and Marine Corps dilettantes, the Army they fly helicopters. Those are whatever contraptions, you know. And and I'm just like, no, actually, naval aviation's pretty hard, you know that yeah. the, know they just what I like is the, the Navy will take a guy, no science background, no nothing, and turn him into an aviator, which I think is great. The Air Force is like, well, we'd like engineers and we'd like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, listen, I know a guy who's an F-18 pilot who has a degree from Juilliard in New York. OK, he was some sort of music virtuoso and he went to Juilliard and all of a sudden he said, F- this, I want to be a Navy pilot. You know, and he ended up becoming an F-18 pilot. You know, I love that. You know, I was a history major. You know, and I love flight school. We're like, this is a fuselage.
0: This <laughs> is an,
1: you know, the Air Force doesn't do that. You know, yeah, they're like, yeah. well, we expect you to be, you know, and I, I just, I'm so glad I was a naval aviator. And I'm, I always wore my Navy wings, and it used to piss the Air Force guys off because I would <laughs> wear them. And I would say, well, look, here's the deal. I earned these. And you gave me these, There you, go. you know, I'm yeah. like, you gave me these by virtue of the fact that I earned these. Oh, yeah. So nice. I'm on my blues all the time, you know, and, and, <laughs> and getting my wings was still one of the proudest days of my life. I mean, just yeah. my brother slammed them into my, you know, with no backing. I have a picture yeah. of my wife. Back whites. when
0: you could do that.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's one of the proudest days of my life. And, cool. and they look better. They're the coolest looking wings without a doubt. I'm you know? um,
0: I'm biased, <laughs> but I agree.
1: And yes. uh and I'm really glad, you know, and if uh if the Navy had the mission, like here's typical Navy. I wanted to be I wanted to go tar when it was getting time to get out. I asked my boss, I said, I'd like to be a tar. And you know, you're familiar with that. It's like where you yeah. go to the reserves and yeah. you're kind of, but you're a full timer.
0: They call it FTS now, full time yeah. support.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So and of course he's like no, that you don't want to do that. That's horrible for your career and blah, blah. I'm thinking to myself, but I kind of do want to do that. And then the unit at Norfolk was flying helicopters. They were doing the special warfare mission, working with the SEALs and, and they were getting the new Hawks. And I'm like, no, I I kind of want to do that. He's like, no, it's horrible for your career. And I'm not going to support that and blah, 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 blah. You know, and, and, and so I didn't end up doing it. You know what I mean? But it just goes to show you had I been able to do that. I'd have never left the
0: Navy. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, a lot different. But the Air Force is the same way. You know, if you want to just be a guy who wants to stay in the cockpit and do that, you know, that's the biggest retention issue. It isn't deployments. It isn't time away from home. It's that guys don't want to be doing all this other (laughs) bullshit. At least in the Navy, you were getting leadership. You know, if you were a division officer, you're getting leadership. You're getting experience. You know, you're. You know, you learn them how to deal with the, the troops and the administrative aspect of it, you know, because I was in the Philippines. I spent so much time getting my guys out of Filipino jails, <laughs> you know, I'll or work. and my goal was to do it without paperwork, get guys back on the base. I just didn't want guys to get jammed up, you know, and the difference in the Air Force, a guy's not going to have a leader, a solid leadership position until he's an O four 4 or an 5 you know, where you're getting it. In the Navy or in anywhere else, as a, oh, you know, show up as a new yeah. nugget to a squadron. You're like, oh, yeah, you're the uh, avionics division officer. Okay, chief, what do I do? Yeah. You just show, sir, just sit in the meeting. I'll tell you when to talk.
0: You know, <laughs> sign the bottom line, all the paperwork. I right,
1: just sign this. Yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll do most of the talking. Nod your head if I need you to, you know, <laughs> and you're like, okay, because you don't know what the hell's going on. Yeah,
0: exactly. Not at first. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yogi, you are a character. You know, we call this happy hour and, and I see you've got something with you. It looks like a uh a window, man. Yeah, okay. I've got a belching beaver. So I don't know if you're okay. a beer drinker, but it's an IPA. I, I forgot to do that at the beginning, but cheers by the way.
1: Cheers, man. Listen, I don't drink for no there's no really good story beyond it other than at this point drinking gets booze gives me heartburn. Yeah, so yeah. I just don't do it anymore.
0: Yeah, I don't blame <laughs> you. Me. Know?
1: I'd love to tell you some great story about why I had to stop drinking, but it's just like, it gives me heartburn now.
0: (laughs) All right, so two other questions, and we can go a little longer, but it's almost been an hour. Uh, The first one is a simple one. So how many hours military, and then add on top of that, whatever you're doing now?
1: I'm at about a little over 5,000 hours. Probably left the military with about 35-ish. All right. That's that's Maybe 3,000. I did okay. You yeah, know, I, I did okay. I learned in the civilian world, though, that, like, guys get 3,000 hours in two years flying tours in the Grand Canyon and stuff. But oh, it's not really. real
0: flying. No. They neither, think it is, but. Neither is the airline thing I'm doing. We're not that Anyone who says, oh, I have 10,000 hours at the airlines. What do, no. you, what do you fly? Uh, the 757 and the 767.
1: Okay. Can you tell me who you fly for? Or is it?
0: Delta. Um, yeah, okay. we're, we're not supposed to make a big deal out of it, but um, they, they prefer to manage their... My their
1: my plans. buddy's at Delta. He's been at
0: Delta for a long time. Um,
1: Howie Elmer, he's a Navy guy. We flew uh-huh. together. He cool. was an H3 guy and then became a station pilot, got all his fixed-wing time, and he's been at Delta probably 20 years now.
0: Yeah, no, it's a good company. Uh, I'm waiting to see if the other shoe's going to drop on October 1st and get furloughed or not. But anyway, the other question I had for you, now, you weren't really in the quote unquote real army, but as you look at all the services that you served in, give me like elevator speech summary of like each one, right? Like the Marine Corps well, is this, the Air Force is this.
1: Well, I mean, you can't go wrong in the Marine Corps. You know, the Marine Corps is the Marine Corps, you know, and that's what's great about them. They haven't changed and, you know, they they talk change, but a Marine's a Marine and I'm thankful and Earning the title Marine is, again, another great accomplishment that i always be proud of. I like the Navy. I just don't like ships, and I didn't like being at sea. But yeah. I, I kind of like the Navy. I like tradition. So I like, the, I like the traditions of the Navy. You know, I tell people the Navy is a fighting organization, and they emphasize fighting. It's just that, unfortunately, in the Navy, the guys who do the fighting are, again, in the minority. But yeah. Yeah. the Navy is a fighting organization. You know, I, I tell people – Remember that Iranian thing of where they took the sailor's prisoner and the guy yeah, with the two? that tube?
0: pissed me off.
1: You know, and I'm like, that lieutenant should be court-martialed. They're like, what are you talking? I'm like, listen. He goes, those are little patrol boats. I'm like, the United States Navy warships. That's right. And he surrendered them without even considering a fight. His job is, in the, and people, I got in huge arguments with guys. I'm like, first of all, he wasn't smart enough to make sure they were watching so they could tell the ships were approaching him. Two, he should have had the guns, man. And three, he should have said, we're not coming with you. Let's do it. Right. If they got sunk, they got sunk. But he's a naval officer, and mm-hmm. that's his job. I said, he he's going to go down as a coward in the Navy. His career is over. And people can't believe it. They, they're they like, no, he did the right thing. He prevented an international incident. And I'm like, "Bullshit. What oh, he did was turn incident. over to United States. And... You know, the, the guy's like, why do you think like that? I'm like, that's what the Navy taught me. That's right. You know what I mean? That's what the Navy taught me, is that you are a Naval officer. You are a leader, you know. you know, And so, I mean, took a little long way. But, you know, the Navy was great. I enjoyed the Army. I, I think it's cool. It was kind of a great – it was a way to stay flying. It wasn't my cup of tea. I don't think the Army really takes care of it. People say the Marine Corps treat you bad. I think the Army treats their people like shit and worse most of the time. But the guard was fun, just because of the group of people I was around. I wouldn't have wanted to be an army aviator being gone for 12 months, getting extended to 15 months and all that. I mean, I, I still got to go to combat and I didn't have to, I mean, I still spent three plus years away from home, but mm-hmm. in shorter spurts. So the Air Force gave me opportunity to fly a great mission. And I consider myself in the fighting part of the Air Force, The Air Force as a whole, despite the fact that I spent most of my time there, I didn't love it. I loved the mission and the people I was around, because the Air Force mentality was more corporate. The military, you know, they used a lot of terms that I hated, like management versus leadership, synergy. And uh, so I felt, no, you're not a manager, you're a leader. And I learned those things in the Navy and the Marine Corps. That's where I learned to be a leader and what it takes. Take care of your troops. And those things I learned, and and the Air Force is is short on that, you know. Yeah. General McPeak, someone should have shot him when he was a lieutenant, because <laughs> I don't mean that for real. I yeah, was going to say that's I a mean, dangerous mean, thing to say, buddy. I mean, no, but he was just—he was the guy who decided the Air Force needs to be more corporate, and they wanted to have an airline-style uniform, and he pulled from the corporate world as his way of managing the force, and I think that did. A lot of damage. And I think it took these two wars to get the Air Force back to a fighting organization. And I'll encapsulate it like this. In the 60s, in like a strategic air command base, it would say the mission of the United States Air Force is to fly, fight, win, period. Nothing else, right? Mm-hmm. Up until recently, to Goldfein or his predecessor, Schwartz, the Air Force mission was like a three paragraph you know, to, to win superiority in the air and space and cyber and blah, blah, blah. No, it's to fly, fight, and win. You know, the Marine Corps, I still remember it. The mission of the Marine Rifle Squad is to locate, close with, and destroy the enemy by fire or close. It's great that we try to fight war in the most humanitarian way possible, but what is our job in the military is to be the fist, of our nation when politics and diplomacy fails that's right. and that's to do extreme violence on the other person. Yeah. I don't like when we don't face that fact. I don't no. like when we make it.
0: I think know. that's anyway, the... I'm a knuckle dragger. I apologize. Yeah. No, I'm not you're awesome. man. You know. You're awesome. I think that's a much deeper subject we could go into on. Are we as a country and a society changing and the things that are important or not? And I, I have, heartburn on a lot of that but all right man well so I want to be respectful of your time I'm gonna ask you one final question all right so you're 59 I'll be 50 next month I mean this is a young man's game but hypothetically hey we need people yogi you got to come back here are four doors each door leads to one of the services inside that door is the the uniform the training and an aircraft that you can go fly which door are you walking through? Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine.
1: It's a tough one because I know the mission I did in the Air Force, and that I would go back to that mission tomorrow. That's a good but answer. I kind of regret not being, and this is silly. I regret not going to combat as a Marine. And All right, it's so you can bring it full circle. Yeah, All right. I, But the mission. I'd probably go back to what I did because that mission is so important and it's so meaningful to me, quite frankly. Yeah. You know I what I mean? Know it. it's, it's saving lives. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a pacifist by any means, but you know, I'm not, I, nor am I particularly bloodthirsty, but to save the lives of the caliber of the people I serve with and the caliber of the people that I've met that I have gotten out of the you're just like, wow, this person may do something someday, you know? and. I've met the smartest, the most brilliant people I've ever met in the military. And I know people who went to Harvard, to Brown, to this. I have friends who are, you know, I've been exposed to some, you know, I'm, I'm an actor now. That's what I'm trying to do now that I'm retired when I'm not flying for a living. And I've just met some brilliant, really interesting people. The most brilliant, interesting people I met were the uniform, the cloth of the nation, and people don't believe me when I say that. And, um, the opportunity to serve with those people again. You, you could pick it for me. And the only one I really wouldn't want to go back to is the army unless I can go to the one sixtieth. But um anywhere else, if you told me, hey man, you're back on the carrier in a squadron tomorrow, cool. Let's
0: go. Would you pick it for me, I'd awesome. be cool. Yogi, you are a hero and I I appreciate- not a hero at all. <laughs> well, not a no, hero you at all, I- man.
1: Just a very lucky dude.
0: You're a hero to me because you've shared this hour with me and I've learned so much. But you are your own biggest. It's critic been an honor life. to talk to you, man. Yeah, well, thanks. Like, I want to hear your story,
1: man. I want to talk to you about flying F 18s and <laughs> and you know and some of your stories. I bet there are. I bet there my stories and listen. I'm. Let me tell you this: How I've I am a lucky, lucky guy. I've been blessed to Amen. be able to do what I've done yep. and serve with the people I've served with, and I was lucky to just be there.
0: And you're still and doing it now, I truly right? So feel you're, that uh, way. you're doing rescue stuff now, is that right? i an EMS
1: pilot. It's a lot tamer than you think. It's sure. taking people from generally one hospital where in Yuma to Phoenix for a higher level of care. Sometimes we do scene calls where we'll go to a car accident or something. Or usually because Yuma is so isolated, they tend to bring the traumas to the hospital and we transfer them from the hospital. And I've worked, in, I've worked all over the country doing that. It's, okay. it's not as exciting as it seems, but well, it's cool. it pays but the bills.
0: But you're still serving. I mean, you are serving.
1: I do it because of the schedule, Jello. It's two weeks on, two weeks off. (laughs) And it's the only job where you can get paid to take a nap. Because you sit around. It's like being on Alert 5. So you're just sitting around waiting for something to happen. I catch up on all my shows. I have a consulting job where I do safety consulting for the Air Force. I do that. And I audition on Zoom for parts now. I mean, it's it's the coolest job. But I still get to fly. Wiggling the sticks is great. And I'll probably fly until, you know, a beach getting a real job. So I don't know.
0: <laughs> well, since I named my company earlier, I won't comment on napping in our line of work. But anyway, <clears throat> uh, so, all right, Yogi, you've been awesome. Well, let's keep in touch. This is really cool. And, uh, hey, man,
1: definitely, definitely. I'll, uh, I'll, I mean, I'll keep in touch with you on Instagram. Um, I'll look you up on Facebook. And uh, I tried to find you the other day. Because I posted this video of this hawk attacking a, a model airplane. Oh, I and saw And the guy that. had a, yeah. yeah and that's so cool. I tried to find it because I posted, I said, I listed all my friends who are fighter pilots, <laughs> you know? And uh, I'm friends with that guy, Rob Caravallo, who runs um, Ocean Tropic Airways, those, runs those um, caravan seaplanes. He used okay. to be an F 18 guy. Oh, cool. Now he runs that airline. And, um, you know, I, just all my fighter pilot friends, I'm like, what do you guys think? Awesome. Everybody sent me comments, should have yeah. stayed in the turn, shouldn't have reversed, you know, <laughs> blah, 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 so it was awesome. You are exactly count on those remarks
0: from groups like us. Oh, no, I was great, because I yeah. was like,
1: because the guy was trying to fight, he was trying to get away. You could tell the guy flying, It was trying to get away, but that bird was relentless.
0: <laughs> well, they've got trained birds now, anti-drone uh, and remote control stuff. So. Let's wrap this up, but uh, I know we're going to keep in touch, and... Uh, Thanks so much. You're a Great talking time. to you, man. And I love the
1: podcast. It's cool stuff, man. It really is. I love it. So keep doing it.
0: You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. Visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com, for a blog, a glossary of the terms used on this show, and a shop page featuring unique military aviation-themed books and apparel. Check out our YouTube channel to watch hundreds of military aviation-themed videos. And for exclusive content, head on over to our Patreon page. Thanks for listening.